creation. Our scripture reading is from, and we've heard part of that already, but it is from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll begin reading at verse 17 up to and including verse 34. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. Hear God's holy and inspired word. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it, for there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord." that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. Now the text is here in chapter 11 and verse 28. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So far, then, the reading of God's holy and inspired word. <clears throat> Our congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we believe that it is biblically uh, warranted to engage in self-examination prior to celebrating the Lord's Supper. It is biblically warranted. It is declared 
right here in our text that we have just read, let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. But the question that rises out of this, what does it mean to examine ourselves? What does true self-examination really involve? Well, we have some very good guidelines right in the very form that we have read already together, and this is what I want to cover more closely with you this afternoon. And so let us do this by the following theme and division. True examination for worthy participation of the Lord's Supper, of yourselves as to your sin, of your heart as to your faith, and thirdly, of your conscience as to your purpose. Now, congregation, you know the very familiar words of our form when it says, let everyone carefully consider their sins and ungodliness. However, this could really be troublesome and a troublesome part of our self-examination. You see, it hurts, doesn't it? It hurts when, when, when someone else has to remind you of your shortcomings. You'll probably raise the defenses very quickly by saying, well, I cannot help it, you see. I can't help it because I had a weak moment. Or, don't blame me for my sins that I did. The devil made me do it. Or some other excuses. And with this or the other excuse, you try to escape from the accusing finger of examination. Hasn't it not happened to you at one time or another that your wife had to remind you that what you've done was sinful? Or that your husband had to tell you that what you said would not have been pleasing to the Lord? It was not pleasant to be told such things, is it? It's rather troublesome, if not downright embarrassing, to have someone discover, hey, he, she is still a sinner. No doubt, you will try then to forget such unpleasantries as soon as possible. But now, now it's self-examination time. And now, we are not reminded by someone here on earth, but we are reminded by God who you are. And you are told then that you must examine yourself and consider your sinfulness and your ungodliness as God sees it. And now you, you and I, we, we cannot excuse ourselves anymore for our sins. We cannot forget them, but we are called now to consider them and assess them. And true enough, this is rather unpleasant, to say the least. And yet, dear people, this is part of self-examination that everyone hoping to participate in the celebration of the Lord's Supper must make time for. You are called, we are called now to consider by ourselves our sins and our ungodliness. You and I, we are called now to have a very good look at ourselves and ask, who am I before God as to my sinful nature? What have I done to grieve him of late? 
what is it really that I deserve what the Lord would do to me? Now, congregation, strange as it may sound, but during self-examination time, you and I are well advised to count your sins and name them one by one. Where do I get that from? Well, no doubt you come to that conclusion when you read Psalm 40. My sins are more than I can count. My heart has failed for grief. Psalm 40. Now, why is it so necessary to look at ourselves this way and discover all those nasty and ugly sins and then assess them too yet? Why is that so necessary? Is it because, well, we are part of a conservative wing of the Christian church and, 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 and because of our brand of religion spells it out that we must consider our sins? Is it because it is more pious to weep about our sins in public than to rejoice in being forgiven? No, those are not the reasons at all why you must consider your sins and your ungodliness. You and I, we, we do not dwell on our sins merely because religion spells this out for us. We do not dwell on our sins to make ourselves appear more holy than what we actually are. We need to dwell on our sins primarily. Why? To keep us humble before God. We need to dwell on our sin so that a humble attitude before God might develop and be raised in us. Because, you see, God does not appreciate pride in man. He does not appreciate that. He finds it abominable when he sees that in the unsaved, certainly, but he does not appreciate pride in believers either. And therefore, God actually finds it necessary that believers consider their sins and then humble themselves before him. Humility before God is part of the goal, therefore, of self-examination, and it is important to God. It is important to God. Well, now, how may we come to that point where we do not think very much of our natural self anymore and we learn to become humble before God? What will it take? By obediently following the prescribed biblical advice that comes to us by way of the form that we have before us, let everyone carefully consider their sins and ungodliness that they may hate their sins and humble themselves before God. There you have it already, that we may humble ourselves before God. In other words, you and I, we are called to take our sins seriously, consider them seriously, add them up and weigh them. Why? Because God did. God does. God does not take our sins lightly. God saw how sin has overturned his whole creation purpose, the very beginning of the world. Before his very eyes, he saw sin destroy everything that he once declared that it was all very good. In God's eyes, 
Sin turned man into a proud rebel. God saw that sin turned everything against him. God saw with grief that everyone was touched by sin. No one excluded. And now man stands before God, over against God, as a rebel by nature. Now think of it this, dear people. As you are considering your sins during this time of self-examination, those sins are traces of that old hostility. Those sins are leftovers of that proud rebellion. Those sins should therefore be a reminder of what we once were before God, an enemy, a proud rebel. Those sins should therefore remind us that God was once so fired up against sin that he demanded the death of the sinner. But then, in a very mysterious way, God shifted that anger upon his very own son, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the anger of God upon sin has to have a vent. It has to have a vent. The anger rose up against fallen man, and, and, and if God had not taken his son and allowed that anger to burst forth over him, that is, his son, Jesus Christ, you and I would not have been sitting here or standing here. Then you and I and everyone in this world would have been terminated already. You see, people, God is love. He is perfect love. But God is also just, and he is righteous, and he is perfectly holy. Therefore, he could not let sin go unanswered. He could not let fallen man off the hook, so to speak, without sin being disciplined and punished. And for this reason, also, as our form says it, considering that the wrath, that is the anger of God against sin, is so great that he, rather than leaving it unpunished, has punished it in his beloved Son, Jesus Christ, with the bitter and shameful death of the cross. God actually found a way to punish sin and yet save the sinner. Such a punishment then fell upon the Lord Jesus Christ. When? Well, when he died, when he sacrificed himself on the cross. This is how seriously God takes sin. And now, during this time of self-examination, God puts the conscious choice before you and me. You either consider your sins and humble yourselves before God, or, and this is the other option, of course, that... Uh, you will have to be responsible for, think nothing of sin, indulge in it, keep excusing yourself, remain stubborn and proud rebel in the eyes of God and doing what you prefer. Oh, there's one more thing. The punishment that came on Jesus Christ and which weighed him down on the cross will still fall on you if you remain an unconsidering and careless sinner. And that's a warning that comes to us from Scripture. 
Well, what to do then, dear people, what to do? Isn't it well advised to take this perhaps unpleasant and troublesome route of considering your sins and learn some humility before God? Self-examination for the Lord's Supper demands that we take our sins seriously. God's Word says this, let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examination of yourselves as to your sins. Now in the second place, there is something else that has to be examined, namely that of your heart as to your faith. The second part of the form, you and I are told to examine, or as it says in the original, to search your heart. Well, what is it that we must search our heart for? What is it that you hope to discover in your heart? It's faith. It is faith in the promise of God. And let us clearly understand what our form for the administration of the Lord's Supper says here. You see, our forefathers, who composed the form for the celebration of the Lord's Supper, way back during Reformation times, were very wise, they were very godly, and that in a very practical way. They knew, for instance, that not everyone could say, I believe that I am righteous before God in Jesus Christ. I have my sins forgiven. They understood this was not an easy thing to say. Our forefathers knew that such a leap of faith was for many people just too big a leap, too bold for some of them, and that it would keep many weak and timid in the faith away from the Lord's table. And our fathers therefore understood that the Lord Jesus had instituted the Lord's Supper precisely for the weak and for the timid in faith, and that the Lord's Supper was meant to persuade and to invite the little ones in the faith so that they could be fed, so that they could be nourished and built up and encouraged in the faith. That's the purpose of the Lord's Supper, you see. So, our godly forefathers did not insist that you search your heart to see if you believe that you are righteous before God and have your sins forgiven, but rather this, that you believe the promise of God. Read what our form says, same thing. Everyone examine his own heart whether he does believe this faithful promise of God, and so on. In other words, you and I are asked here, do you believe the promises of God and that these promises may also be fulfilled in your life? Are you busy with those faithful promises of God? Are you busy with them? Now, this might very well mean that you are not yet confident enough to say that your sins are all forgiven and that you are righteous in Christ. You may be hesitant to say that yet at this moment, but is it your heart's desire to believe those faithful promises of God and that God is faithful to do as He has promised? There are people, it comes down to this. As you examine yourselves for the celebration of the Lord's Supper, are you a person who knows what it is to be busy with the promises of God? 
Have you learned to wrestle in prayer with God about his promises to you? Have you learned to place your hope in those very promises of God? You know, declaring the promises of God is also a large part of preaching, isn't it? The heart of the gospel of God's promise of forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, you see. This is how God, after all, has revealed himself in many sections of his holy word. Forgiveness is a promise to those who repent and believe on Jesus Christ. And those promises of God were heard already right after man's terrible fall in sin. Then, while man was still cowering because of his awful misdeed, God said something that was awesome. And he said, I will. I will do something to change this terrible situation. And the promise began to flow from the mouth of God, beginning in Genesis 3 and verse 15, known as the mother promise. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking there to Satan, between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Beside this word of promise in the Bible, you also have the visible promises by way of the sacraments. You see, the audible and the visible gospel, both word and sacrament, are both promise-oriented. They are promise-oriented. Now, isn't God amazing, dear people? He has approached us, sinful creatures, not with threats, but with promises. He has come towards enemies with the hand of peace stretched out before him to you and to me. He says, as it were, to a shifty eye and suspicious man, here is my promise. What do you think of it? That's God's way of approach, you see. He first comes with his promises. And yes, there are warnings that follow up as well, if those promises are not taken seriously. But he comes with his promises first of all. That's what God does. And so, will you search your heart to see how your faith has grappled with those promises of God? The assurance of faith might or might not be yours yet. You might not be able to say as yet, I know that I am justified. I know that I'm fully forgiven. But this will come. It will come. But the blessings of God through faithful attendance of the Lord's Supper. With the Lord's Supper, you see, the Holy Spirit will, in due time, give you then also a measure of assurance of faith. With the Lord's Supper, the Holy Spirit will strengthen your faith so that the promise and the thing promised will become one with you. Isn't it great to be an assured believer? But such assurance might not always be felt so strongly. 
our nature, our nature tends to keep us weak in the faith, keep us plagued with doubts. That, that's human nature, isn't it? Our forefathers, they understood this very well. And our form for the Lord's Supper, therefore, advises in such cases then to examine our heart whether there is a believing desire towards the promises of God. Therefore, dear people, let us be busy, seriously busy, prayerfully busy, searchingly busy with those great promises of God and with the promising God himself. And if you realize that those promises of God have not meant very much to you as such so far, it is high time that you do begin thinking about it. Because, you see, it is part of self-examination as it is prescribed here in this form, and without such self-examination, you would be ill-prepared for the celebration of the Lord's Supper. But now in the third place. Our form also speaks of the examination of your conscience as to your purpose. Now, this last point can be put in very simple terms. You are to examine yourselves as to what your plans are on how to live from now on. What are your plans on how to live from now on? And your conscience is there to assist you in this. Let's listen to the form again. Let everyone carefully examine their own conscience to see if they are fully determined to show true thankfulness to God in every area of life and to walk sincerely before his face and whether they will with full sincerity strive to lay aside all enmity, hatred, and envy and earnestly resolve from this day forward to live with their neighbor in true love and unity. Now, are those your and my sincere intentions? We are to examine our conscience. What are your and my intentions for the future? Are there no specific intentions or purposes with you, perhaps? Is your conscience perhaps not all that particularly lively? Well, it is part of proper self-examination and preparation for the celebration of the Lord's Supper to know that your conscience has sincere intentions of showing true thankfulness by your daily living. Our forefathers who wrote the form were no mystical, secret-in-the-closet type of Christians. Not at all. They were practical in their religion. They saw it necessary to be thankful Christians in all of life's areas, in church, at home, at work, at school, vacation. Our forefathers, they were very practical, and we too must be practical in our Christianity. And we must therefore ask ourselves, what are my conscientious intentions from now on? Now, if you cannot answer this, you have not really begun to examine yourselves according to our form yet. And so let us ask ourselves and let our conscience answer, is it my intention to walk uprightly before God? Have I laid aside sincerely all enmity, hatred, and envy? Am I firmly resolved 
to live in true love and peace with my neighbor. No gossip, no outbursts of annoyance, no signs of impatience with them, no expressions of being upset with them, but living in true love and peace with my neighbor. Whoever my neighbor might be, wife, husband, children, grandchildren, parents, and so on. Is that my intention from now on? Dear people, are you willing to let your conscience be your guide in this? Before even coming to the Lord's table, you will have to take some very conscientious work about your purposes, about your intentions, and also about your resolves. You should be prepared to get your conscience involved in this so that there will be a clearly defined purpose in your life from now on to live thankfully, to live pleasing to God. Let your conscience therefore be your guide to resolve to love your neighbor with a God-fearing love and be at peace with your neighbor, him or her. Anything less, dear people, is a failure in self-examination. As you see, our forefathers, again, our forefathers have given us a little bit of homework to do. And that with a three-part examination. Do we dare to do with anything less? It is, after all, very biblical and very practically, practically spiritual. And therefore our text says, but let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Dear people, please understand our text well. Without this kind of self-examination, there can be no participation of the Lord's Supper. But as you find yourself being pressed by the Word and pressed by the Holy Spirit to this kind of examining of yourself, of your heart, of your conscience, do not spare yourself, but do it, do it. Let the truth come out and take such truth and back to the Lord. And then as our text tells us, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. Dear people, it is the Lord's appointed way of self-examination as to your sin, as to your faith, and as to your purposes is the way to the Lord's Supper. Amen. Let's close in prayer. O oh Lord our God, we have heard some difficult matters, matters that are not easy to deal with, self-examination. But we thank you that your word is clear and we thank you also that the form that our forefathers have put down for us as instruction have been of great help to us. And we ask, therefore, that we would take it very seriously and that we would then consider these three ways in which we are to examine ourselves. Help us, O Lord God, to be honest with ourselves and to be honest with you. And help us, O Lord God, that we may therefore be well prepared to celebrate the Lord's Supper next Lord's Day. Bless the congregation. Bless the office bearers. 
bless the pastor and his family as they will soon return back home again. And grant that this congregation may celebrate the Lord's Supper with great joy to the honor and praise of your holy name. And may all things be down to your glory. We ask that you be with us now as we go home, as we reflect upon the things that we have heard, and that we may put it to practice what we have learned, especially this afternoon. Be so with our young people, our boys and girls, who have not yet made confession of faith, and who will be witnessing the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And we pray for our youth that you would stir in them a desire also to celebrate the Lord's Supper and to partake of the elements in order to remember the Lord Jesus Christ most practically. And we therefore pray for our youth that they too may see something of value in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Bless each one of us now as we go our homeward way. Please take care of us. Help us to do our day's work, our week's work, and enable us to return again next Lord's Day to worship you, that we may do so in the beauty of holiness. We ask all this in the forgiveness of our sins, and that in Jesus' precious name. Amen.